And if you please take out your copy of God's word and turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We're going to be in verses 1 through 31 today as we look at this most wonderful account of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. But Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, To them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, 
I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our heavenly father, our resurrected Lord, and ask his blessing on our text this morning. Oh, Jesus, help us to understand this word that you have brought to us. Help it to sink deeply into our hearts that we may be transformed by your words. And in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, it is wonderful to see all of you here for our Resurrection Sunday celebration. The events that we have just read about in this passage is what makes us gather here, not just this Sunday, but every Sunday. This is the event that proved that Jesus' birth year was worthy of resetting the entire calendar. This is the event that has turned the world upside down. And here we are still talking about it 2,021 years later. Because Jesus rose from the dead. The first one to, be ro- to, to rise from, from the dead and to still be alive. Alive just as we are. He breathes air just like you and I breathe air right now. But for something so world-changing, Something so unprecedented as to have someone conquer death. The thing that will at some point take all of us, take everything in this world. For something so unprecedented, there are still doubts that can arise. Even in the minds of Christians. Sometimes we can even lose focus as to what's the point of this resurrection. Yes, we know that this means he's a conquered death. But what does that mean for us in our day-to-day lives? What difference, what functional difference does it make when we wake up in the morning to say, Jesus is risen? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. And it might surprise you to know that the first people that needed to be convinced of the resurrection, the very first skeptics that Jesus rose from the dead, were the apostles and disciples themselves. They needed convincing. So that's what we're going to see today. Not only were these former skeptics become believers, these were not just minds that were changed about a small issue. These were people that were so fundamentally changed that all but one of them gave their lives for this truth that Jesus rose from from the dead. The only one to survive was the Apostle John. He was exiled out of his homeland, and that's what gives us this book here today. We're going to look at two points, and you can see my outline in your bulletins this morning. Our two points are that the resurrection allows us to believe in Christ, to believe in him. The resurrection allows us to believe in him. And further, the resurrection commands us to believe in him. 
Resurrection commands us to believe in him. So let's take a look under our first point today. That the resurrection allows us to believe in Christ. In the opening verses here in John, John chapter 20, back, we're back in verse 1, we find Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb early in the morning. There isn't much that's recorded about Mary Magdalene's relationship with Jesus. Uh, we do know that when she met Jesus, he cast seven demons out of her. You can find that in Luke chapter 8, verse 2. And that she followed him just like the disciples did. And she was at the cross when he died. That's as much as we know about her. But we know that she obviously loved him very, very much. She's likely heard Jesus' teachings many times that he was going to die and be resurrected. Because he's said so many times. He has mentioned this in Matthew 16, 21, 17, 23, 20, verse 19, Mark chapter 8, 31, 9, 31, 10, 34, Luke 9, 22, and 18, 23. All of these places, Jesus has mentioned, I am going to die and be raised again. This is not something that should have been surprising. This was something that was drilled into the disciples over and over and over again. But here... Mary can't deny what she's seen with her own eyes. She's seen Jesus die on the cross. And now she's come to prepare the body. Usually at this point, the bodies would be prepared uh, by putting spices in with the linen. So this way we could help with the, the smell of decomposition. And here she is coming early in the morning to fulfill this duty. But she finds it empty. The tomb is Without its inhabitant. The stone has been rolled back. This would be a very difficult thing to imagine. This stone would have been huge. It would have sat inside of a small rut. So it would have been really, really hard to get this thing open. But yet she sees that it's there. So now what's what she going to do? She runs through some of the possibilities. Maybe someone has moved the body from, from some other grave. This was the grave that was available when they crucified him. They had to get him in the tomb quickly because the Sabbath was coming. Couldn't do any work with that. So maybe they just moved him to some other grave. Or perhaps someone has stolen the body. Maybe someone thought, here is this really influential speaker. And wouldn't it be good to know that I have this body and take it as some sort of trophy? She doesn't know what to do, so she sprints off to find two of the disciples who come back and look at this tomb. She's mentioned this to, in fact, all the disciples, as Luke records, but the rest of the disciples thought that she was just telling an idle tale. It's not possible. But John and Peter are willing, at least, to see. John refers to himself as the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved throughout his book, we can tell this is John because he's the one that's not mentioned of all the other disciples. It'd be like you can tell who's taking a photograph in a group picture by who's not in the picture. So here, John and Peter begin their foot race to the tomb. I like how John records the fact that he got there first and mentions it a couple of times. So must have been rather proud of this accomplishment. So they arrive on scene and they look into the tomb and they find... The linen cloths that have been unwrapped and placed there where Jesus was laying and the head cloth folded and put neatly next to the other clothes. This destroys any idea that this might be a grave robbery or a body removal. 
person who was going to be removing the body from one grave to another wouldn't have unwrapped the body. That would have been something that you would have wanted to do. It was already prepared for the burial. You wouldn't want to unprepare it for the next tomb that you would put in there. And someone certainly wouldn't have stolen it because they wouldn't have taken the time to unwrap the thing while they're trying to steal a body. It would be like a robber trying to break into a house and trying to work on the combination of a portable safe. It would be a lot easier to just take the safe and run and work on the code somewhere else. They're not going to take the time to neatly fold the cloth as they leave things behind. Robbers don't tend to put the drawers back in or nicely fold back your closet when they ransack the house. So John comes to this conclusion in verse 8. That when he went in, he saw and believed. There was no other explanation. Couldn't be a robbery. Couldn't be a body movement. This had to be resurrection. And we'll find in other gospel accounts, Peter comes to the same realization as well. But they don't understand everything. In verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. And the disciples went back to their own homes. They didn't realize that this resurrection was absolutely critical. That the Old Testament required that Jesus would rise from the dead. In fact, this goes back to the earliest book. If you remember Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God prophesied that the offspring of Eve would crush the head of the snake. It was very revealed now the snake is going to be a stand-in for evil, for the devil. We find that out in Revelation, that that's what the snake is referring to, and that this offspring would be Christ. And if Christ was to remain dead in the tomb, That means the devil won. That means evil was too much. The reason why Jesus had to be in the grave for us is because that was the penalty for sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he was taking the wages of sin or the payment of sin. The result of sin is death. And the only way to know that that payment was fully paid was to have Jesus rise again. It's the receipt, the acknowledgement that the check has cleared, that sin has been fully paid for, is the fact that there is no more death for Jesus to die. So if he didn't rise out of that grave, we would be of a people most pitied, wouldn't we? We wouldn't have salvation. Our sins wouldn't be paid for. If you're still receiving the bills in the mail, that means your debt is still here. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, it means that sin wasn't too much for him. It means that the devil didn't win. And it means that we will one day rise from the dead too. Because we are united with Christ. This is what I mean when I say that the resurrection allows us to believe in Christ. Because Jesus made a lot of bold claims for himself, didn't he? Claims to be the son of God. Claims to be the one that all of scripture was prophesying towards. That's a very big claim. And you know what? Over a dozen other people made the same claim right around the time that Jesus did. Now, you probably haven't heard of those movements, have you? Why is that? Because all the others died and stayed dead. But this is the one that rose from the dead. This is unlike any other religious figure that you can imagine, from Muhammad to Buddha to Joseph Smith to anybody else that you can imagine. All of them are still dead. 
But Jesus is the one who has been raised to life. He is the only one to do so. And because of that, all the other claims that he's made can be believed. Because who else could pull off something like raising himself from the dead? Who could lay down his life and take it up again at will, holding the power of death in his hands? Only Christ can do that. And this allows us to believe in him. This changes it from just this hope or just a philosophy. But it turns Christ into a savior worthy of being followed. But the disciples don't see this in their fullness yet. They will in a moment. But we have another character we need to look at. And that's Mary. Poor Mary. Look here in verse 11. She is staying behind and is still weeping at the tomb. Whether or not she has been able to catch back up with the disciples, perhaps they could run faster than she could. They perhaps have already left and haven't had the chance to tell Mary of what they've discovered. Here she is standing outside the tomb when something remarkable happens. She sees two angels on either side of where Jesus would have been laying, at the head and at the feet. One uh, really insightful commentator noticed that this was a lot like the mercy seat of the Old Testament, where two angels were on either side of that mercy seat where our sins were atoned for. And here the angels ask her a question that seems a little obvious, almost disingenuous. Is asking her, why are you weeping? It's like, why else would Mary be weeping? She's at a graveside. That's what you do. But the question is not disingenuous. The angels have seen exactly what's happened. But she hasn't seen this yet. Her Lord is missing. And she has no idea where to find his body. But perhaps maybe the angels gesture to look behind her and she turns around and she sees Jesus there. She doesn't recognize him. And you say, how is it possible that you can't recognize someone like that? Well, perhaps there were a lot of tears in her eyes or my personal thought is she's seen what what happened to Jesus three days ago. He was beaten to a pulp, beaten beyond recognition and nailed to a cross. You don't just recover from that in two days. The fact that she is now fully convinced because she knows he's dead. She watched that Roman soldier put a spear through his side. She watched him die. So the idea that she could be looking at someone and says, oh, it's like, oh, yes, of course that's Jesus. This shows how convinced she is that he is in fact dead. But boy, does she know that voice when he says her name. This was the same voice that cast out seven demons from her. She'll never forget that. And she responds with a term of, with a term of affection, Rabboni, and clings to him. Now, this can be a little confusing as to why Jesus says, don't cling to me. But uh, scholars helped untangle this and saying the reason what Jesus is saying here is he's not annoyed by this gesture. But what he is telling her is that he's not going anywhere yet. You can imagine the sense of loss that Mary has felt over the weekend and the fact that here he is. She's not going to let him out of her sight anymore. What if he goes again? I can't go through something like that and clings to him. And here Jesus assures her he's not going anywhere yet. 
Yes, he's going to ascend to his father. Yes, he needs to return to heaven, but that time is not yet. Instead, he tells her to go and tell his disciples that he is risen. This is a rather bold move to do. At this time, women's testimony was not valued in court. It was not as authoritative for a woman to say that she had witnessed something than to have a man witness that. But here we see Jesus' priorities and always looking to those that have been left behind. And he tells Mary to go and spread the news. The first one to tell that he has been risen. Now, so far, we've seen two responses to the resurrection. We've seen two people, or, well, three people, that have been very willing and ready to believe. Here, John, all he saw was the empty tomb. He didn't have to, or or John and Peter, saw the empty tomb. They didn't need anything further. They knew he was raised from, from the dead. Mary required a little bit more. She needed to see Jesus, to see that he was raised from the dead. They were ready to go. But there are others who are a little bit slower. That's where we're going to turn to and look to the rest. As we see the rest of the disciples here in verse 19. It's the evening of that same day. The disciples are gathered together. Now, presumably, they have been told now twice that Jesus has been raised from, from the dead by Mary. First time is that his body is missing. Which all those times that Jesus mentioned he's going to be raised from the dead should have rang some bell, but it doesn't for the first time. Surely the second time she says, like, all right, look, I have a report from Jesus' own mouth what he told me. Still not quite getting there. Helps us feel better, doesn't it? Jesus can use people that don't get things immediately. And here they've all gathered together. They're in the, their rooms, doors are locked. They're afraid of the Jews. They've just killed Jesus, so they can imagine. It's like, all right, well, you know, we're the, the next most prominent people that was in Jesus' life. Perhaps we're next. So they're afraid of them. Presumably, John and Peter have told the rest of their brothers that he's been raised. But apparently, that testimony hasn't counted for much. Because here, it requires Jesus to arrive. And here Jesus appears in the room. How that's done is not said, whether he is teleported in or could just walk through the door or whatever it is that he's managed to accomplish. It is not, there is no way it can be harder than being raised from the dead. And here Jesus appears and says, peace be with you, which is the thing you need to do when you suddenly appear in, in a room. Calm the disciples down, having just seen this person that they saw was dead just a moment ago. But here he shows them his hands in his side. It's not a ghost that they're seeing. It's not a hallucination that they've conjured up. This is the body of Christ. Their Lord and Savior stands before them. And he says, peace be with you. One commentator pointed out that that is indeed what Christ has offered to them. He's not just telling them peace be with you because they need them to calm down from their startled surprise at seeing him but also the fact that Jesus has died and paid for their sins. So because of that, they can have peace with God. And peace can be with them now because he has been raised from the dead. Then he has a mission for them. He says, peace be with you. As my father uh, has sent me, even so am I sending you. It's in verse 21. 
He has a job for them. And indeed, so do we. This isn't news that we keep to ourselves. This is the greatest news in all the world. And he has given them the charge to go out and take this gospel to the ends of the earth, whatever that might mean. Then in verse 22, when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit, the power to do what it is that they have just been charged to do. And then verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. What he's saying here is like they people need to hear the gospel. That's how they're going to be forgiven. So it's not saying that the apostles have this power about about who gets into heaven or not. But they have the message as to who gets to heaven or not. It's those that have heard this gospel. That's what we proclaim here today. But there is one more skeptic, one last person that needs to be convinced. We get Thomas here in verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. He missed out on the blessing because he wasn't there. Thomas may have been dealing with his grief in his own way. Some people like to be around others when they've gone through something hard. But maybe Thomas is like, is like other folks that just want to be by themselves when something like this happened. So for whatever reason, he's gone. But verse 25, all the other disciples have came to him and told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas is not convinced, which is amazing to see what the level of skepticism that he has. Probably the level of hurt that he has had because of what's occurred. I mean, we could imagine perhaps in that time that he wouldn't have accepted the testimony of Mary Magdalene. Maybe he thought this was someone who is, the, the, the testimony doesn't count, so we're not going to believe him. But here he said, 10 of his brothers who have all said, we've seen him. It's not just we've heard what Mary said, no, we've seen him. But so deep is his doubt that even the witness of 10 other men was not enough to convince him. In fact, listen to what he says here in verse, 20, in verse 25, lighter part of that verse. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. The words that he used there for never believe, he uses two negative words, which in the language that he is speaking really emphasizes what he's saying. To put it today, it would be like Thomas would be saying, I will never, ever believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead unless I see him personally. This isn't Richard Dawkins saying this. This is one of the apostles. This is someone who has seen Jesus and has heard many times as we've heard that he is going to be raised from the dead. But Thomas doesn't believe now, unfortunately, we give Thomas an especially hard time because he is the one who doubted. In fact, it's a phrase now to be a doubting Thomas. But as we've seen from the rest of them, none of the other disciples believed until they saw Jesus either. So we don't need to pile on to Thomas necessarily. But what we can see actually in hearing these words out of Thomas's mouth, this actually can give us a lot of hope. I mean, what would you think of someone who would say this to you? Saying, I'll never, ever, ever believe in Jesus, no matter what you say. 
we might conclude that that person is beyond hope. Or that the gospel will never penetrate their heart. But here, what we're going to see in a moment is that Thomas is going to believe. Look here, when Jesus returns, verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. And the same words spell out again, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And in verse 27, he turns to Thomas. In proof that even though Jesus wasn't there when Thomas said those words, he knows exactly what Thomas is looking for. He says, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. And then Jesus does almost a counter to those two negatives that we saw earlier. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And instantly Thomas Believes and answers him in the strongest of terms, my Lord and my God. This is not saying my Lord and my great teacher, but my Lord and my God, the one that I am to worship forever. Here, this is out of the mouth of someone who has doubted him very, very fully. But here, even Thomas has been turned around. Now, what are some things that we can learn from all these different expressions of faith? We've seen a lot of different people, those that had doubted or those that had believed immediately or those that took a long time. What can we learn from all of this? Well, as one scholar pointed out, as we found out that Jesus can handle skepticism. All of these people had questions and Jesus has answered all of them. He was able to address these questions, and he's able to do so for you today. It's been a long time since Jesus has risen from from the grave. He's heard your question before. And so has the rest of the church. So if there are questions that you have about the resurrection, there are answers for them. It's okay to ask and to probe and press in to the faith. To press into the knowledge of who Jesus is because he can handle that. The gospel is not propped up by duct tape and smoke and mirrors and is just hoping if you look at it at the right angle, you'll see it. But this is the firmest truth that we could ever embrace in all the world. But then we could say it's just like, well, yes, but I wish I could just see him. Then I would really know. Well, honestly, it wouldn't help. As Kent Hughes, a wonderful pastor and commentator, had put it this way. He said, some say that Thomas spoke for the whole world. Give me proof and I'll believe. I'm not so sure. I think the world's view is more like, show me the facts and I'll invent another theory. And that's exactly what we've seen. All the proof that we need is here in this book. In fact, that's why this book was written, as we see in verses 30 through 31. The people all down through the ages have tried to come up with alternate explanations for how this is possible. Because the facts are just plain before them. How do you say, well, someone stole the body? Why would the disciples die for a lie? Well, maybe Jesus passed out and revived himself and managed to make his way back to the disciples. 
It's like, that's a, that would be an amazing trick. To be able to fool Roman executioners who were experts in death, lay in the tomb for three days in critical condition with no care, unwrap the linen by yourself, push down the stone, overcome the Roman guard, walk two miles to Bethany, and then show it with the disciples. Not bad. All these other explanations that we could look at to say the tomb is still empty. This has been the most scrutinized event in all of human history. And the result is clear. That Christ is risen from the dead. We see the testimony from these people, from skeptics, who are primed not to believe for some reason. And still all of these were convinced. So while we can't see him physically right now, Jesus does promise a blessing for those of us who haven't been able to see him physically. A blessing that wasn't available even to the disciples. In verse 29, he says to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is a blessing that's available to you. Don't throw that away just for a glimpse. Trust me, you'll see him. It'll be there. In the meantime, there is a blessing for those of us that, have been, that will believe even though we have not seen. Our eyes are not the final judge of truth. As any magic show will tell you, you can't trust what you see. Your eyes are not the final arbiter of truth. The word of God is. And that's what we have for us today. Now, this brings us to our second point as we close for this morning. Now, the resurrection commands us to believe in him. This is different from allows. Yes, we need the resurrection to show us that Jesus was who he says he is. A lot of people tried to convince the people that they were the Messiah. And we've seen many other people who have tried to make those same claims to be the Messiah. But none of those people have rose from the dead. But now, if Jesus is risen from from the dead, and he has, that point's not up for debate. Now the question is, what are you going to do with it? Because you have to. This isn't something that we can just take or leave. This isn't something that is a preference as to whether or not you accept it. This makes a difference for your whole life. And more importantly, this makes the, all the difference in your eternity and where you stand. So if you've tuned out so far, and I understand. I grew up in the church. I understand how you can wander listening to a, a monotone voice for a while. But if that's been, been, been the case, it's all right. Tune back in now because this is the most important bit. If you hear nothing else of what I've said, that's all right. Get this. You and I have a problem. You and I have something we must deal with. It's not what sort of house we're going to buy, how much money is in our account, what sort of job we land, who we marry, or anything else that we can look at as for a status in this world. The only thing that we have to deal with in this life is what are we going to do with our sin? What is sin? Sin is anything that we do that is against what God has told us to do. This can be lying, this can be stealing, these are things of actions, or even things that we think, lust or anger. Anything that we do or things that we don't do, supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves, and when we don't do that, we sin. 
over and over and over and over again. Even if you commit only three sins a day, that's going to be over 100,000 sins if you live to be the age of 70. And that's assuming you only sin three times a day. We have a big problem. Because this sin is not just something that offends other people that we have to bump into and we share on this rock. Ultimately, this sin is a capital offense against the highest authority possible. It's one thing to sin against a friend. It's another thing to sin against a king. And there is no one higher. God is the creator and judge. And everything that we do in our sin wrecks the world that he's made and offends him So what sort of punishment is fitting for treason at the cosmic level? It would be an eternity in hell. An eternity of suffering. That's the only thing worthy for us to commit sins against someone so high. Once you die, there is no second chance. The idea of purgatory is a lie. You're never going to find it in the scriptures. When you die, that's it. This is your moment to deal with that. And if this year has taught us anything, is we don't know what the next day holds for us. So if this is something that you've not dealt with, this is the time to do it. So how do you deal with God? How do you get forgiveness from something that you can't possibly outdo? So it's like, well, maybe I can do good works to erase the bad ones. That's not going to fly. The murderer doesn't get off of his charge because he helped some old lady across the street. Doesn't factor in. He's still a murderer. And it's the same for us. We're still sinners. No matter how much good we do, that just can't be swept under the rug. We can't do it by a moral reform. Someone has to take our place. If justice is going to be served, sin has to be punished. And that's what we saw with Christ. That's why he went to the cross. He took all the wrath that was aimed at you and me and absorbed it into himself. Took the payment for sin, that is death, and brought it to the, and brought it to the grave. And then left it behind when he was raised from the dead. And the way that we are united with someone like that is to turn from our sins and ask his forgiveness. And you say, is that it? It's like, well, that's still a pretty big thing. You're putting your entire trust into someone else. There's no more thought for how good you have done. It's only putting your trust in all of eternity for Jesus and then surrendering your life to him. Not in order to earn salvation, but as a gratitude for the life that he's given to you. That's what it means. That's what it means to believe in him. It's not just a mental acceptance that Jesus existed in the same way that we mentally accept that George Washington existed. No, this is a full surrender of our entire lives to him. Forming a relationship with a living person as Christ. Everything must and will change. And if that's something that you sitting here have never done, I would be more than happy to lead you through that if you have any further questions. This is the most important thing that you have so don't delay on that. But maybe if you're sitting here and you say, well, I am a believer. 
You said that this resurrection makes a functional difference in my life. Yes, it does. Because this changes how we view everything else in life. When we look at a time in which there is suffering in us, we can tend to look at this as like this is the only thing that's going on in our lives. Suffering hurts. Pain is hard. But when we look to the term, when we look to resurrection, we see that pain is not everlasting. Suffering is not everlasting. That there is hope that extends beyond death. That means that gives us a much larger perspective as to what our life looks like. When we get up in the morning, our life is not, what can I accomplish today for me? Because I've only got a few years here. It changes everything. It says, no, 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 no. There is something that is beyond the grave for me. Yes, I've got a short time here, so I need to get busy for what Jesus wants me to do. But there is a hope that exists way beyond this. Now, instead of trying to build our little house of cards on a windy beach, now we are setting down in concrete things that will last for all of eternity. The things that you do here will count forever. Because you have a hope that exists beyond death. So you can give up your life. You can say, my life can be used for someone else. I will give up the next 60, 70, 50, however many years that you have left for Jesus. Because I will have billions and billions and trillions of years for all of eternity to praise the Lord in bliss. That's what the resurrection means. That's the hope that we can hang on to. When it seems like everything else is lost, there is hope that we have. But we have to trust him. It can be very hard when we look and see our life in a tomb. We've gone through some really hard things in our church this year. And there can be times where we're like Mary, where we've heard all of these words before. But we're still at the tomb and weeping because we see what's in front of us. That's why we need to preach this to ourselves every day. There is a resurrection. There is hope. There is something that is beyond this. That's what keeps us going. That's our hope. And that's what we need to go and tell the world. Because right now, out there in that world, they're living for just today. All their hope stops at a tombstone. What a horrible, I thought. Horrible reality to live that we can work all of this time and it all just be wasted. They need to hear this hope. So we need to go and proclaim Christ's victory over sin and death, which is our victory. And look forward to the day when he will come again. And rule on this earth forever. When he resurrects everything in our world. When there will be no more sin, pain, or death. We look forward to this day. All because he rose from the dead. That we celebrate today. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this hope of resurrection that we have. Lord, I pray that you would give us a stronger identification with that resurrection. Help us to craft our lives 
with this in mind. Help us remember the hope that we have, that we are not putting our hope in the things that we can see in front of our faces, but that we can look beyond. Lord, I pray that you would give us this blessing that you've promised to us, that we who believe without seeing will be blessed. Lord, I pray for each and every person who is here and those who may be watching online. Lord, I ask that they would believe in you, that that's what this book is written for. And I pray that that effect would take place in their heart. Only you can change their heart. So I pray that you would reveal yourself to them even today. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.